gracious, holy God. We come to you this morning, and Lord, we ask, would your name be hallowed, and would your kingdom come, and Lord, would your will be done in the Ukraine today? Most merciful God, we ask for your grace and your nearness. We ask that you would give them daily bread, food itself as some are on the run, daily sustenance for those who know Christ through your spirit, sustaining hope, sustaining mercy as some are separated from their families and some go to fight, some maybe to die. Oh, gracious God, let your kingdom come and your will be done in Ukraine. Lord, we pray in the halls of power in Russia this morning that your kingdom would come and your will be done in Russia as it is in heaven. In the heart of Vladimir Putin, Lord, and the leaders and those who counsel him. Lord, as you have done miracles in scripture and we have seen, you can turn armies, you can wipe out armies, but you can turn the attentions of those away and thwart their efforts and spare lives, and so we ask, have mercy. At the end of the day, these things are greater than us, and so we just come to bow and ask, great God, bring and build your kingdom in the hearts of those that know you. Today, may they, may they worship you, and those who don't, all the more in this great duress, would you open their eyes to see Christ, cry out and be saved, and if they breathe their last on this earth, they would awake with you, Lord, our God, we pray for your name to be hallowed by the leaders in Europe and in their presence. Your kingdom would come and your will be done by our United States leaders. You have told us to pray for our leaders, and so we pray. We ask your mercy, your guidance, your wisdom, and Lord God, you can do what only you can do. Lord, this morning, may your name be hallowed here in our hearts. May you build your kingdom in our very lives. Would you thwart the attacks of the enemy? Fight for us against the stupidity of our flesh, of my flesh. Protect us from the lies of the world. In all this, Lord, work and speak now to your glory in Christ's name. Amen. First Peter chapter 5, by this point in his letter, Peter has addressed pretty much every sphere of human relationships as he has encouraged these scattered and beleaguered Christians in the first century throughout Asia Minor and the known world at that time who are facing persecution, some who will give their lives. He has addressed for them how to live differently, not for the lust of this life, but rather in a behavior maintained by the Spirit's presence to the glory of God, proclaiming the excellencies, he says in 1 Peter 2, of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And Peter has taken that idea from chapter 2 and worked it all the way through all the spheres of different human relationships. Now, this morning, he's going to, as he comes almost to close, address in this last address, he's going to address the dynamic of spiritual conflict. The spiritual conflict that can engulf these scattered and chosen exiles, the attacks of the world, and the flesh, and the devil. Good thing we don't have those to worry about anymore, right? Or maybe the scripture still speaks, and the Spirit wrote these for all eternity for us. 
Peter uh, gives them some commands here this morning. In fact, our short passage, verses, passage, verses 6 through 11, will stand out by having a ton of commands in it. They come in rapid-fire fashion. But here's what I want you to see is that within each command given this morning, command for our life and our rescue and our good, there is even more the anchor of some truth in each and every one of them. Because it is truth that saves, it's truth that sanctifies. And so in the midst of spiritual conflict, for every command, Peter gives some truth. And the truth helps rewrite the battle lines. The truth changes the whole dynamic of the spiritual battle. The truth reveals reality, though we get dull and sleepy and confused. The truth doesn't change. The truth in fact, changes how the whole engagement works. Pick up with me, 1 Peter 5, let's read our passage, starting in verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. The first truth that Peter speaks to these scattered aliens and the first truth for us to know today for assailing spiritual conflict is this. Mighty is the hand of the Lord. Mighty is the hand of the Lord. I'm giving you the truths first. Peter gives the command and then follows with the truth as the motivation for each one. But unless we see the truth, we will have great difficulty obeying the command. But this is the truth that changes everything. Mighty is the hand of the Lord. Brother, sister, whatever your struggle today. Whatever your shame because of what you've done, whatever huge fear in the world, whatever chronic, debilitating, difficult situation, whatever it might be, mighty is the hand of the Lord is the first thing that Peter tells. And then he says, humble yourself, therefore, humble yourself, therefore, underneath his grace. Once you notice first in verse six, the passage starts with therefore, what is the therefore, therefore? It's there to point us back to verse 5 where he just quoted the proverb that says, sorry, I have to read it. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. In turning now to the spiritual conflict that every one of us find ourselves in, he leaps from this truth that God fights against those who are arrogant and he comes to the aid of those who humble themselves. And he says, mighty is the hand of the Lord. So you can humble yourself under that. How hard is it to get underneath the strength of the Lord? Answer, pretty easy. But let me ask the question the other way around. How easy is it to get out from under submission to the Lord? Pretty easy, isn't it? Because we think we're awful strong. The hand of the Lord is mighty. That phrase about the hand of the Lord being mighty is just scattered throughout the Old Testament, so often it is a phrase of deliverance. The mighty hand of God, the arm of the Lord has come to save. Usually it's some show of great power. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, at the burning bush, 
God tells Moses, I will do my wonders, and with my mighty hand, I will lead out my people, and they will know that I alone am the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 4, just a generation later, it looks back at all of the Exodus events and just echoes all of those things, what the mighty hand of the Lord has done. I wanted to read those this morning, but I'm going to be moving quickly. The point is, he has just told us in verse 5 that God is opposed to the proud. And here he tells us in verse 6, um, that's a pretty strong opposition. I don't know about you, but I don't want to arm wrestle God. Foolishly, I try, but we don't want to arm wrestle God. We don't want to be against him. But when we're submitted under his mighty hand, the results can be glorious. Question for you and me this morning. First application, have you ever considered that maybe your deliverance in whatever situation you're striving so hard to rescue yourself will come only when you've humbled yourself and let his mighty hand do the work, right? You ever thought that the fight to save yourself is really in the end only opposing God and keeping his power at bay rather than saying, you know what, Lord, I'm so dumb and I'm done with defending and how desperately I need you, and I cast myself upon you. I come underneath your mighty power. Mighty is the hand of the Lord. We could uh, spend all morning, and the entire message could be on that one idea. Mighty is the hand of the Lord. But I'll give you one passage. I'll read it to you. You can jot it down for later review if you'd like. Psalm 33, Psalm 33, verses 6 through 10. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. By the way, you may just want to pray that over Ukraine and Russia and everything else going on in your world this week because mighty is the hand of the Lord and that's our hope. Amen. Notice, notice that the end goal for Peter, for these believers, is it their humility and submission? No. That's the means. But what's the end goal? Read verse 6 again. Therefore, because God fights against you if you're arrogant, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Why? So you can be humble? No. So that, purpose clause, he may exalt you at the proper time what's the end goal peter speaks to the good of these struggling believers and he says oh friends don't fight against god please but rather come and submit yourself and the end goal is in his time he will raise you up he will place you he will give position or honor or reward he will come with solace and with help and comfort or whatever the need is he knows in his perfect time this is a supernatural dynamic whereby we get saved from ourselves and we get saved from being so, so dull as to try and fight against God. You think, I never fight against God. Well, maybe you wouldn't, but I do constantly. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for the words of Peter here, humble yourselves so that he may exalt you. What a rescue he has for us. Christ himself in Luke 14, Peter is just being a good disciple. He heard these very words from the lips of Jesus himself, Peter did. In Luke 14, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and you know the rest, right? Whoever 
humbles himself will be exalted. It's a truth because it's a dynamic that God has woven into the universe. It may take time, but the justice of God, the wheels of God's justice grind slowly. I think that was Luther, but somebody famous said it. But in his time, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles will be exalted. So his purpose then, Peter's and the Lord's for you and for me is your honor. His purpose is your exaltation, if you're willing to submit. That's just how good it is. Mighty is the hand of the Lord, and if I'll submit, He'll do the work. And in the end, I get reward and position, and oh my goodness. His purpose is your honor and His glory. Does He not know how to give good gifts to His children, right? Oh man, that is so sobering. So sobering for me. But he does. Humility then is easy when we see the might of God's power. Would you walk in this morning if we had taken a poll and answered the question, do you think humility is easy? Would you have said, yeah, that's pretty easy. In fact, I'm really humble. Well, okay, well, thanks for answering our poll. <laughs> but humility is easy when we see mighty is the hand of the Lord. When we see the kindness of his ways, humility becomes attractive when we get a glimpse of his authority. He is over the universe. And when we get a picture of his mercy. So brothers and sisters, acquiesce to the sheer authority of God's hand. Why do anything else, right? I think to myself. Submit to the sovereignty of God. Acknowledge it. Pray for it. Relish it. Rest beneath the shelter of his wings. Hide in his mighty shadow. Isaiah 32, great passage about the coming Messiah one day that it says he will, be, he will be like the shadow of a great rock in a dry and weary land. And you go, he's a big rock and there's a shade? That's boring. Yeah, unless you've wandered in the wilderness for a while. Then it's life, it's refuge. He is the shadow of a great rock in a dry and weary land. That's a very much like the picture that Peter's giving us here, 1 Peter 5. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. If your day today is only strife, then let's take a lesson from the psalmist. Psalm 131, verse 2. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, so I have quieted my soul. It's his might that makes that possible. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So, what then? What if the conflict is just too great? What? What if your spirit is just too exhausted? You mean I've got to do something else now? What if you don't know how to get underneath the gift of that shade? Well, Peter's going to tell us. He's going to encourage us to let him do the drawing as we, drawing to himself as we take our anxieties to him. The second Truth for assailing spiritual conflict is tender is the care of your father. Tender is the care of your father. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. The NAS, the translation that I'm reading from, does an excellent job of translating the participle as a participle. Humble yourself, and then it says casting your cares. And the understood helping words that need to go in between is humble yourself by casting your cares. How do I humble myself under the mighty hand of God? Well, 
I just come and bring all my mess and go, here you go, Lord. Is that not good news? I mean, what wretch, what sinner, what, what, what twisted around the axle soul can't get over that hurdle? Okay, Lord, I can do that. I can, I'm good at anxious. So I, you want me to cast my anxieties? Great. I, I love that spiritual command. That's the how of the humbling ourselves. First, I just want you to notice the, the truth that assails, that helps us assail our spiritual conflict, and it is the Lord's tender care. Casting all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. You know, Christ spoke at length, didn't he, when he walked this earth? He spoke at length about sparrows and lilies and head hairs and stuff like that. Why? All to make the point that Father knows. He's counted every single one of them on your head. He cares for you way more than those birds and those flowers. All to convey the tender care of those who believe and follow Christ. They now have a father by adoption, by being regenerated and made his son through faith. So that is the hope. And then we come and we humble ourselves by seizing on that truth. And we say, okay, there is a spiritual battle in my soul. I fight against arrogance every single day. You know what? I, my parents didn't train me how to be arrogant. Did yours? I mean, did they have to sit you down and go, look, Frank, something you're going to struggle with in this life is you're going to want to be more prideful. Let me give you five steps to make this easy for you, right? I, I came by it honest, right? We come by it naturally. And that's a spiritual battle because the scripture says we fight against God if we refuse to submit. If we choose to submit, then he is a grace giver. That is the battle. That's the truth that we need to know to assail this conflict going on about whether or not we'll humble ourselves or be arrogant. And the encouragement here is he is tender in his care. So come and humble yourself by casting all these anxieties. How does casting anxieties humble us? Well, Humility, scripturally speaking, just means to rightly esteem yourself. That's all humility is. It doesn't mean to uh, crawl in the dirt and say you're a worm. I mean, you are, so, you know, compared to the infinite glorious beauty of God. But it doesn't mean that we have to ascribe ourselves some falsehood because all we got to do is just be honest about who we are, and that's humility. But when we come and we cast our cares, you know what we're doing? When we bring all of our concerns and we cast all of their weight upon him, you know what we're doing? We are proclaiming you are sufficient and I am not. We're just, we're just acknowledging and esteeming ourselves rightly. We're acknowledging who we really are and who he really is. So cast your cares on him. And when we cast, he takes our anxiety. He gives rest. Shalom, that Hebrew word for peace is in its fullest understanding, a word that means wholeness, right? That's what he gives as a gift by his spirit today for those who are his sons and daughters and come to him. All of this is a direct application then of that proverb in verse 5. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. How does he give grace? Well, when you humble yourself to cast your cares, then he gives you wholeness. I think there might be a moment in the coming week where you might need wholeness. I will need it before I go to bed tonight, I'm sure. The humble 
need not be anxious. It's only the prideful that need to worry. That's what the passage tells us. The third truth he then tells us for sailing spiritual conflict. Mighty is the hand of the Lord, first. Tender is the care of your father. And then third, and now he's going to look at the other side of the coin. Cruel is the hate of the enemy. Cruel is the hate of the enemy. Verse 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. There's the dual command. And then he gives the reason why. Here's the truth that we need to see clearly to assail spiritual conflict in our lives. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be of sober spirit. Um, this is the third time Peter's used this phrase just in this little book. In chapter 1, he said uh, to be of sober spirit so that we could fix our hope completely at the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you hope in other things? I hope in all kinds of things. Um, and they're not inherently sinful. Uh, at some point this week, I'm going to hope that uh, the Blackhawks win a hockey game. And I'm going to hope for a good meal. And I'm going to hope for nice weather. And I'm going to hope my car doesn't run out of gas. And I'm going to hope for a lot of things. But Peter encourages us to pause and be of sober spirit and to practice as a matter of discipline, fixing our hope completely. Lord, even if they lose and I don't eat well and I run out of gas and the circumstances don't go good and my week is miserable, that's not where my hope is. My hope's in Christ because that's a promise that's sure and I'll never be disappointed. That's the first reason for sober spirit. Chapter 1, chapter 4, he says, be of sober spirit for the purpose for prayer. Pause and look around and listen and see what's going on so that you can reflect back to God what he's showing you and what your needs are. Here, it's be of sober spirit because of the purpose of spiritual conflict. Obviously, all three of these are related. And what is the conflict? Well, he tells us, your adversary, the devil, three times he names him. Your adversary, the devil, prowling lion. By the way, in Scripture, Satan is, uh, starts out as a serpent. He's also called a bird, a wolf, here a lion, and eventually a dragon. Jesus says in John 10 that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's a summary of the end game of all of his work. Or as Luther has, Martin Luther has bid us to sing, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. For Christ is above the earth. And he is far more than his equal. Here we are told that the lion is hungry, that he is on the prowl, that he actively is seeking opportunity to do what? To devour. The word there means to swallow. In some places in the New Testament, the Greek word there for devour actually means to drink. How do you like that? The devil is a roaring lion that wants to swallow you, he says, drink you down. Why is he roaring? Here, because uh, I think he specializes in intimidation. Just hearing his war, roar is enough to make the hearts of men fail and their knees buckle and their spirits cower, right, apart from Christ. And that's what he specializes in. Cruel is the hate of the enemy. He loves it. So how does he make a meal of men? For those who have never trusted Christ, friend, if you're here today, 
Jesus says one of the things he does is he steals the word. He steals the truth of the seed of the word when it falls on your heart so that it can't go deep into the soil and bear fruit. One of Satan's jobs is he's just a, a seed thief. One of the other jobs is that he is a slanderer of God. The serpent did it in the garden. Has God really said, Eve? Oh, he wouldn't want to keep the good thing from you. And he slanders the character of God himself, and he's done it from the beginning, and he's never stopped since. And he makes a meal of those who do not know Christ, who do not have the truth, who don't have the protection of the Spirit living in them. Is this a scare tactic? Amen. You better believe it is because it's the truth. He also makes a meal of men by deceiving them, by blinding men to the state of their souls. Paul writes that in 2 Corinthians. We could go on. This is the work of the enemy. It's what he does. It's what he's always done, and he's far better at it than any human being. How does he make a meal of men for believers? How about for these who are followers of Christ that Peter is addressing, who are, as he says, chosen exiles? How would he make lunch of them? Well, as Peter has written, he's waging war against the glory of God and the goodness of Christ. Don't have time to track that in 1 Peter. But the point is, the question for us is, will we believe that God will one day be honored and that Christ will one day be master? Because a half dozen times or more, Peter has pointed his audience to that day when Christ is revealed, on the day of his appearing, looking to head when he comes. And he says, man, if you know Christ, and that's the day you're longing for. And that day changes everything about this day. It's not just that day, but the reality of that day changes everything. And what the enemy wants is for you to forget that that day's coming. What the enemy wants is for you to not believe. It's a question, eh, I don't know. I mean, maybe it'll get a little bit better. No, Christ will reign. How many times has Peter talked about at the revelation of Jesus Christ, or we just saw last week, when the chief shepherd appears, right? He's pointing them ahead. The question is, will we allow the Spirit to bear fruit in us as we walk in faith? See the perspective that he's given us. Because here's the truth, the truth that assails spiritual conflict, cruel is the hate of the enemy. Peter goes on then and gives us the fourth truth to assail spiritual conflict in verse 9. Victorious are your brethren in the world. He now turns and looks not just within, between you and your spirit and God, who knows you, not just to the spiritual realm around you and the enemy's ta attacks, but he turns now to remind you and me who have claimed the name of Christ that we are not alone, but we inhabit this community of followers of Christ down through the ages and across the earth even today. Victorious are your brethren in the world, he says, verse 9. But resist him, that's the enemy, resist him firm in your faith. Why? Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Standing firm in the faith, firm in your faith, he says in verse 9. That is the way to fight the spiritual conflict. And how can you do that? By knowing you're not alone. By knowing God's not surprised. By knowing that your brethren around the world are fighting the same fight 
and they're winning. Victorious are your brethren in the world. Is believing that Christ is in control of all of this enough to help us to be humble in the midst of being wrong? To have hope in the midst of huge discouragements in our day? To believe God for the impossible in the midst of what looks like a litany and a scrolling list of headlines of bad news. Yeah, if we're firm in faith. The good news scripture tells us faith is not of our making, it's Christ's gift. So we just ask, Lord, I do believe, help my unbelief, right? And it's worth it. And all these trials really do bear fruit in holiness in our lives and in honor one day. What is the encouragement that he has given to that end for us to stand firm in faith? The victorious suffering of our brothers and sisters. We find record of this a lot of times just in Scripture itself. The Thessalonians, if we had time to turn to Thessalonians 1, he speaks of their joy amid suffering. In fact, when Paul first came to Thessalonica, you know what? He got beat up and driven out of town. In fact, if I remember rightly, he might have got beat up and driven out of the first town and then came to Thessalonica and said, hey, I just got beat up for following Jesus. You want to follow Jesus? And they said, yes. And then he got beat up and driven out of Thessalonica. I think I have that right. Somebody can check the book of Acts. And Paul writes back and he says, the joy of your faith in Christ in the midst of such suffering is dear to my heart. They were victorious. The Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you can check them out. Timothy himself is um, commended by Paul and many other names. Victorious are your brethren in the world. Well, that was great for back then. Guys, this is one of the reasons why every November we, um, we observe the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, right? And we pray by name for our brothers and sisters around the world. I don't know if you can remember all the way back to last November, but uh, we prayed for some uh, brothers and sisters by name in Nigeria, Indonesia, Egypt, Somalia, Mexico, and many, many others. Victorious are your brethren in the world. Or how about today in Ukraine? I saw a video this week. I'm sure you guys have seen some of these the same. It was a family in their home, and when the shelling started, they were singing together a song of praise. He will hold me fast. They sang together. I saw another video of that group of Ukrainian Christians going to the center of the square in Kharkiv. Is that the name of the town? And there in the middle of the square on the hard, cold bricks, they knelt on the concrete and the bricks and they prayed. Hmm. I've read two instances of missionaries, and I'm sure there are dozens, if not hundreds or thousands, two instances of missionary families who chose to stay in Ukraine even though Ukraine and the U.S. and their sending organizations told them, go home and get out. They prayed and they said, this is where we've cast our lot. This is where we'll live or die. What will be amongst those as they go through the suffering? Victorious are your brethren in the world, Peter says. So be fortified in faith for your own suffering resistance. 
when you are called, when I am called to suffering resistance, will we be able to be firm in faith? Oh, God, help us. I can't. I won't. But he can. And he will. And he lives in you. He lives in me. Fifth truth to assail spiritual conflict found in verse 10. Settled are the Father's works to confirm you. Settled are the Father's works to confirm you. Verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, Peter says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He is saying you can be hopeful in the midst of your temporary suffering. First, notice this work, the Father's work. Four words here at the end of verse 10. He will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. It's a little confusing because I went to spend a little time studying the Greek words to stand behind this, the words that the Lord first communicated this in to those original recipients to understand, okay, what might we be missing in the translation? And I'll just be honest with you. I found it terribly confusing. Because the words overlap dramatically. But if you want a little inkling of the difference emphasis, the word for perfect is a word often used to speak of wholeness or healing. Like when you have a broken bone and you set it straight, it is perfected using this Greek word. It comes to healing and wholeness. The next two words basically both mean strength in different ways. What's the difference between the word strength, power, and might? Answer, yes. So there you go. That's the next two words. And then the nuance of the last one is foundation. It's strength, but it speaks of where you're grounded. So he's got us on all ends in wholeness underneath, confirming and establishing. Friend, do you feel weak this morning? Notice the tender encouragement of verse 10. He will himself. If you know Christ, this is something he does personally, intimately, tenderly to build you up when you're on your face in tears. He comes and throws his arm around you and says, I know, but I'm working. When you say, Lord, I'm so shaky, I can't even stand up. He says, I know, but I'm making you stronger than you've ever believed. And my grace is sufficient for you. If you feel weak, he can make you whole. He can ground you firmly. If you know Christ, then Philippians gives the promise that really is echoed here. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And so you can stand. And he who went before you gives hope. And even more there is hope because, Peter says, all of this is just temporary. He starts, verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while. Lord, um, that relationship has been breaking my heart for decades. It doesn't feel like a little while. Lord, this disease, they say, will take my life. And the months feel like centuries. It doesn't feel like a little while. But Peter speaks from an eternal perspective where this is but a blip. 
And we will look back and we'll say, you know what, it was just a little while. This phrase, by the way, bookends the entire book. You can go back to chapter 1 if you care to or else I'll read it to you. 1 Peter 1, 6. It's about five verses from the beginning of the book. And where we are in chapter 5 is about five verses from the end of the book. And they say the same thing. In this you greatly rejoice, that is knowing Christ's coming for you. In this you greatly rejoice. And then he says, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. What words probably repeated more than any other in the entire book of First Peter? Probably the word suffering, or at least the idea, right? But what is the envelope that wraps around this treatise on suffering for the fall of Christ? Answer, a little while, just a little while. Man, he is coming. And in the meantime, settled are the Father's works to confirm you. The truth is that eternity is a long time. And the Spirit is now, even today, bearing Himself to bring all of God's resources upon your imminent need. I want you to notice three resources that are here. We're going to just let that beep for as long as it wants to. I want you to notice three resources here in verse 10. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace... It's all of God's grace. You think that's enough for what you struggle or I struggle? Is the suffering intense that these believers are facing? Yeah, you know what? Chapter 4, verse 12, Peter calls it a fiery ordeal that has come among you. Peter's admitting it hurts. But the grace that you now experience, chapter 1, verse 10, the grace you now experience is so much more. He says, this one who is not only the God of all grace, but middle of verse 10, who called you to his eternal glory. And that, eternally be, that eternal glory begins at the moment that you come to know him through Christ. Oh, we do not yet see one another yet glorified. We don't have these glorified bodies. Sin has not been eradicated from my, my life. I'm, I'm a selfish wretch, and I do lots of stuff for Frank's own good. But man, there is a glory. In your soul and mind, because the Spirit lives there by faith if you know Christ today. And so even now, chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And finally, he's going to do all of these things in Christ. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That's where he will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's not your strength, but it's his every time. Lord, I don't feel very strong. When did I ever say you were strong? I said I was strong. Lord, I'm very weak. I know. And I'm very strong. Settled are the Father's works to confirm you. Well, this idea of the little while... And this idea of eternal glory, tiny blip, long forever, it's what really leads Peter. At this point, he can't stand it. It's too much. He's going to blow. And so he just bows his head and lifts his hands and he worships. And the last truth he gives to assail spiritual conflict is this. Forever is the dominion of our God. Forever 
is the dominion of our God. Verse 11, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen, he says. Wait, wait, I thought, I thought you were right now. I thought you were talking to me. Peter has forgotten about everybody else in the room. To him be dominion forever, Lord, amen, Peter says at this point. I love it. He's just like Paul sometimes, caught up, inspired by the Spirit, considering eternal glories. He just sings. He says, sorry, I thought I was writing a letter, but I sang, and the guy who was dictating, he took that down. So there you go. Peter emphasizes here with dominion the Lord's rule and his sovereign reign over everything. Peter here is encouraging these suffering chosen aliens with this final truth of spiritual conflict. Forever is our God's dominion. This, this is the God, Peter, who has just said in this passage and a little bit before it, this is the God who even ordains the devil's assault upon his children. Forever is his dominion, even over the enemy. This is the God who ordains even the world's maligning of his sons and daughters, and he does it for his purpose. Unless you think maybe God was not on the throne yesterday or took a nap last week. Everything is under his mighty hand. Was it Luther? I didn't mean to be all Luthery today. Was it Luther that said that Satan is just a barking dog at the end of God's leash? And so it is with every one of our trials. He is master over all. Satan rends, but he does not reign. What I want to pause to consider here as we close is just to see what Peter has done. He has broken out in spontaneous praise. When Peter says, you suffer for a little while to these believers, does Peter speak of things that he does not know? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Acts 4, it was Peter and John and the disciples who got threatened, jailed, scourged, and they left rejoicing, saying, thank you, Jesus, that we got to suffer for you. Are you kidding me? This is the greatest thing that could have happened today. Oh, he knows a little bit about the little while of sufferings, doesn't he? And so he knows what it means to soak in all of these truths. Mighty is the hand of the Lord. Settled are the Father's works to confirm you. And forever is the dominion of our God. When believers see the truth about their spiritual conflict, whether it's with or against God, whether it's within our own soul, whether it's horizontally with others, or whether it's supernaturally against the enemy. When they see the truth about that spiritual conflict, they can assail it. And when that truth comes to roost in their heart and in their soul, when the believer gets a glimpse of God and the Spirit's work, you know what he does? He praises how great God is. And you know what? In that moment, conflict is over. Stand with me and let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we just freely confess that we are a weak people. Lord, I'm, I'm not even able to pull this off. I can't 
even in my own power, if I wanted to choose to praise you just as an, an act of the sheer force of my will, because sometimes it hurts or I'm worried or I'm just so foolishly deceived that I don't even want to. But you, Holy Spirit, always want to and you live in me. I can't, but you can and you live in me. I don't know how, but you always know what to do and you live in me. Thank you, Holy Spirit, and Father, thank you for the truths of these words, truths to assail our spiritual conflict from every quarter in which it comes. Father, we ask if any here this morning have not yet bowed their knee to Christ, would you do business with their hearts and in your love, would you draw them? Oh, friend, know today that there is a Savior who doesn't save the healthy. He saves the sick. He saves the needy. He saves those who humble themselves under his mighty hand. Come and believe and be saved, and he will do the work from there. And Father, those of us who are your children, we just rejoice again in these truths. Fight for us this coming week and remind us. We'll praise you for it, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here with us to worship today. Have a great week.